Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Struggle Create Strength. Struggle Create Strength is a mental health platform that exemplifies that everyone has a story. No two stories are the same, but every story has the potential to help someone else. On today's episode, we'll have one of my dear friends, Carly Appel, come on the podcast. She's currently attending Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and she has a story that everyone needs to hear. Hope you guys enjoy, and here's Carly. Okay, well, thank you very much, Carly, for obviously coming on to Struggle Creates Strength podcast. Uh, it's really exciting to have you. Uh, you definitely have a story that a lot of people need to hear, and you have a lot of wisdom behind your words. And I'm just curious if you want to share your story a little bit. Yeah, I would absolutely love to share my story. Do you just want me to start from the beginning? And Absolutely. Let's hear Perfect. it all. Let's do it. So I don't know, like it's mental health is always it's very interesting for me, like looking back at my journey with mental health, especially because I went so many years undiagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, and during one of my therapy sessions, uh, recently, I got a predicted onset of 2010. So I think we would have been in grade five or something like that. So I sort of started backtracking to figure out where it all started and how it started. And yeah. um, so my diagnosis, first of all, is bipolar two disorder and other specified personality disorder. Um, bipolar is a mood disorder and the other specified it's personality disorder um, that combines traits from different personality disorders. So for me, it's borderline personality disorder and um, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. And so what those traits entail, I think this is kind of where it started. So that's why I start talking about these ones. Mm -hmm. Um, I, some of my traits, like they're maladaptive personality traits, such as perfectionism and self-injurious behavior has been one for me. Mm -hmm. And the two sort of go hand in hand. So with perfectionism, a lot of people will always throw out the term, like I'm such a perfectionist, like, oh, my notes aren't color coded. Like, (laughs) (laughs) um, but it's actually, it's a lot deeper than that, believe it or not. Like it um, totally impairs your ability to function normally. So for me, I have like self-directed perfectionism, which means that I have this sort of underlying belief that everyone, everyone has an expectation of me and I need to do certain things to please like you in particular, like I need to act differently towards you. So I'll make sure that you like me. Whereas with my housemate, I would some days have a totally different personality with her to make sure that she likes me today. Um, And then I also have, I think it's like, it's socially oriented perfectionism. So with that, like, yeah. So again, that goes hand in hand. So I think that everyone has this perception of me that needs to be upheld. And I also have these really high standards for myself. Whereas if I don't meet, like if I don't crack a certain number on a test, like anything, anything below that, like 90, for example, like it's a fail and it sounds funny, but it's, it's a meltdown. (laughs) So, um, No, so that was always something for me, like perfectionism has always been there. Like looking back, that was a huge problem, like the lost friends because of it, um, lost sleep over it. And a lot of times it's a vicious cycle with the acting really impulsively, because if I do anything that feels anything remotely close to being a failure, I act impulsively and I don't properly regulate that. And so that had for me always been a struggle, but I kind I just kind of lived in silence about it. Like Mm -hmm. I didn't know. I I didn't think anything of it. Right. Like it wasn't discussed really mental health in school. Like we learn all about physical education and nutrients and this and that, but no one tells you, Hey, like behaving that way, that's probably <laughs> like mental illness. <laughs> like, it's great. Um, so going with that, I like coming into my first year of Queens, I was very, very high function, like so driven type a personality. Like I came in with the expectation. I was going to pull off the same numbers right away that I did in high school everything was just going to fall into place. And all of a sudden, like it was a series of different events that people didn't even, I think, realize had a, like had a toll on mental health. Um, so I mean, in Kelowna, for example, like I was in Ontario and back in Kelowna, there were, there were people talking about me and it was what, what dirt can we dish about Carly? And like, what can we stir up about her? And it did, it came back, like rumors got back to me and I, I didn't handle it well. So that started the feed. And then obviously university is way harder than high school. And 
I got my first tech back and like I got 75, which isn't like, again, isn't a bad score for like first year, like yeah. first test, like whatever. I was art history. I know nothing about art. Um, but again, with those, like those maladaptive personality traits, the perfectionism and like that just didn't work. Like that did not work for me. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's scary, like with mental health and mental illness is if it's not attended to, it is a domino effect that happens so fast. Like mm. for me, I went from being so okay to not being okay. And I just remember it was a gradual buildup of little things. And I went from feeling like I was running this freaking school. Like I was running this town <laughs> to, okay, well, I got a 75, so I'm going to fail. I failed. I failed university already. That was my mentality. Um, I was in a relationship that fell apart. Rumors in Kelowna were getting heated. Um, I just remember like gradually waking up every morning and it just got a little bit worse. Like something just knocked it and something just knocked it. And one day I woke up and I had convinced myself that people were following me. Like, super irrational it doesn't make any sense um so I deleted all social media because I thought people were watching me through my phone I thought people were listening I didn't understand why people were talking about me what I was doing so I was out of my first step and then I started having really vivid dreams and that's where it like started to get really bad and I knew my mental health like something was super wrong Mm -hmm. I was having really awful dreams like my suicidal ideation was at an all-time high. I was sleeping and dreaming about it. I was living with it while I was awake. So I actually tried to make an appointment with a counselor. And I got in and I told her everything. Like I broke down. I was like, I know something's wrong. Like, I don't know what's wrong. I went from this high to this huge low. Mm-hmm. And I'm I don't feel good. Like I'm I have a really high like suicidal ideation my temptations are really bad. I feel like people are watching me. I have no energy. I don't want to do anything. I can't get out of bed. I feel like a failure. And she basically said, I'm so sorry that you're feeling this way. I hope you're going to be okay. And my next appointment is in November. Oh my God. This was like October 16th or something. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I, I barely made it this month and a half. I don't know. Like, I don't know. And that was sort of my last, my last hope was for her to hear my cry for help. Um, and so it just, like I said, it was a gradual buildup and those maladaptive traits came into play and I ended up in the hospital. Um, that was my first attempted suicide Mm -hmm. and it was terrible. Like, And that's the thing people don't understand too about like being suicidal. I see Luke, a lot of your social media, it's advocating about suicide and how a lot of people when they're suicidal, um, that's conformed into being an attention seeker or something like this. And they don't really realize like the severity of it. Mm -hmm. Um, It was terrible. Like my mom had to fly down from British Columbia. I, and I don't know, I was numb. Like when I say I, like I was robbed of, my energy, my personality, my spunk, I had nothing. I was a blank slate and I was just irrational. I blocked her from accessing any of my medical records for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, it got to the point, like she phoned my dad and was like, you need to take time off work. Like she won't talk to me. So my dad flew down to, um, my school was incredible. The second they heard about this, um, because the thing that I do love so much about this community is that there are queen students sort of affiliated within every faucet of the of the uh, community so a lot of the doctors um they were training from the queen's med school and so with that though all of them were able to go back to the university and say she needs help like we need to do something to help her so the community like at queen's they kind of came together they met with my family me it was this huge action plan um she got me accommodations for tests like all this stuff it was awesome And so they started pumping me with antidepressants because it looked like a major depressive episode, obviously, um, which worked wonders in the short term. I, I went from, like I said, having no life, like actually the lowest point of my entire life. Like I didn't think there was a coming back. No one thought there was a coming back. Mm -hmm. So 
like waking up the next morning and I looked at my parents and I was like, I'm going to my psych lab. <laughs> like, <laughs> like what? I was like, I'm going to the psych lab. <laughs> like, I'm not missing this, man. Like, I already missed a school. I gotta go. And they just sort of looked at me and they're like, Are you kidding me? It's like, no, I'm good. Like, I'm good. <laughs> And it, it is funny now because like, I, I know what was happening, yeah. but at the time, no one knew what to do. Like they were like, okay, well, we're not going to pull her out of school. I guess she, she wants to go. So everyone was on board. The teachers were fine. And the rest of the semester, I honestly, I was thriving. I was in like hyperactive mode. I was a beast to be honest with you, just like <laughs> studying for like 14 hours a day getting all of the info in going to the gym excessively. I was just, I loved it. Like I felt great. So I came home after Christmas, they sent me back. All was well. Um, and for the first, I want to say six weeks, it was that same high, but it was starting to manifest to the point where I was no longer, it wasn't a healthy, healthy, proactive lifestyle anymore. It was Okay, so I can't sit still. Um, I'm going to go to the gym three times a day, join nine different clubs, spend $600 at Shoppers Drug Mart. Um, oh, yeah. And also, I'm not going to study anymore because, like, God's with me. And that was the weirdest part because I I don't practice Christianity. Um, and so for me to all of a sudden just believe that God, yeah, he's there. He's, he's my dude. <laughs> He's, he's got my back and he's going to give me all the answers. Like I had fully convinced myself that me being happy was the best thing that had happened to me in a long time. And he was, he, so God, like a higher power must be giving this to me. So why would I study? Because that doesn't, that's not fun. That doesn't make me feel good. Um, and so all it took again was me going into our, the first midterm, like, uh, and reading week and, uh, inevitably I did not do well. And then it was that vicious cycle of like, Oh my God. Okay. So perfectionism is not fed. I'm a failure. Mm-hmm. Like, what's wrong with me. And it was just a crash. Like that the most impulsive sudden crash. Like I don't even really know how to, like, I guess the best way to explain come like coming down from hypomania is it's a blackout period. You're, I don't really remember any of the hypomanic, uh, like the risky behaviors, what I was thinking. I don't really remember. It's really fuzzy. Um, and I also don't remember the immediate spiral into major depressive. All I knew is I, I was in the hospital again and I, the only thing I could think of was I was doing, um, I was doing this group therapy there, the cognitive behavioral therapy. And that was the only thing I thought to do. And so I, I actually admitted myself to the hospital that night. I walked there by myself in the snow in a pajama shirt and little booty shorts. And I was like, I need help. Something is wrong. I don't know what's wrong, but something is really wrong with me. Mm-hmm. So I was in the hospital. Um, I got out on the circumstance that like I meet with a psychiatrist and I take these mood regulating courses because something is not right. Like I'm not regulating any of my moods effectively. So I went to see the psychiatrist and I kind of walked him through everything. And he sort of was like, Kate, you're going to go home for reading week. I'm going to think about this. Like, let me know how it goes sort of thing. And so I went home for reading week and I saw my family doctor and I sort of ran her through everything. And she looked at me and she goes, I, I think you have bipolar two disorder. That would explain when you got to Queens, you were on such a high all of a sudden you had this crazy crash because bipolar two, it's cycles of manic depressive and um, major depressive disorder mm-hmm. or sorry, hypomania and major depressive disorder. Yeah. And she said that would explain you were on a high a week. You, something got triggered because you've got those maladaptive personality traits. It sent you into major depressive. And when you're on, when you're bipolar and you're not on a mood stabilizer mm-hmm. and you're only on an antidepressant, it just essentially gets rid of the depressive part, right? So we're just feeding that hypomania and feeding it and feeding it. But if I'm not stabilized, I was so overblown manic to the point, like that's why all of those irrational behaviors were taking place during the period from January to February. Mm -hmm. 
there was nothing to bring me down. So that's why it got out of hand to the point. I believed a higher power was guiding me. Like I joined nine clubs because I it, it was like being on steroids. Like go it. Mental steroids. <laughs> it was mental steroids. Like, and it's fun. And that's the problem with bipolar is that when you're not on the mood stabilizer, that's why a lot of people who are bipolar they don't take their meds because being hypomanic is fun. Like you are on a high, you are indestructible. It's just wonderful. You feel like the world is truly your oyster. And so again, though, without that stabilized mood, that can only do so much until you're going to cycle through the major depressive again. And it took that one trigger. And so I was really in denial about this disorder because I was very uneducated on bipolar. I just knew that bipolar was a mood disorder what does that mean? That just means I'm a really moody person. Like, um, I had previously mentioned, like you hear a lot of people say, Oh my God, the weather is so bipolar today. It's just so stigmatized as just being this absolute ridiculous cycle of mood all the time. And so I said to, I was like, there's no way I'm bipolar. Like I am, I'm perfect in my mind, essentially. Like, right. Like that perfectionism kicked in. I was like, being bipolar means I'm not perfect. It means I have a problem to deal with. I don't want to be bipolar. Mm -hmm. And she was like, well, I'm going to get in contact with your doctor at Queens. And so it was really awesome because my doctors in Kelowna and my doctor here and my psychiatrist here, they were all exchanging emails to try to figure out what was going on. Yeah. Again, I got back to Queens and my psychiatrist was like, I a hundred percent agree with your doctor. I thought you had bipolar too. I wanted to wait and see how it was like going home, going through your family, like your history, all of this, like it all adds up. Like it makes sense. So I think we should try to put you on mood stabilizers. Let's get you on the effective meds. Mm-hmm. So going through meds, like I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this. Getting on the right medication can be an absolute terrible roller coaster. Something works. All of a sudden it doesn't. You get really awful side effects, really awful symptoms. But the second that we sort of found like there was a few episodes, like I was good. I was bad. I was good. I was bad. Not to the extent where I was hospitalized again, which was great because I was, I was uh, medicated, but still it took some trial and error, obviously. But I think I've been on the same meds now for over a year and it's, it's changed my life. Like I, this diagnosis has been the best thing for me. I've been able to just break the stigma and get the appropriate help, get the appropriate medication learn strategies it's still the biggest struggle and there's still a lot of stigma surrounding it obviously and mm-hmm. stuff comes up like life's gonna life's happening like yeah. <laughs> not perfect like <laughs> i've got a lot coming my way now um but no so it was just it was a huge process it truly um you asked me earlier about my favorite quote and that was mm-hmm. rock bottom became the new foundation on which i rebuilt my life and i stand by that and there's a lot of people that ask like you know if you knew earlier would you change anything and I said, I always say no, like while it was extensive, I hitting that rock bottom was the only reason we figured out my diagnosis. We figured out how to deal with it. I figured out, okay, so what maladaptive traits do I actually have? How are they maladaptive and how can I fix them? And now everything I do, my mind is constantly going like this to like (laughs) regulate (laughs) my own behaviors and interpret other people's actions. And if there's someone who just doesn't like me, I, I don't take that well, but I, I have to go through all the mechanics of that and try to deal with that. Um, so yeah, that's sort of how it was a big roller coaster. That was a lot at you, <laughs> <laughs> but it's definitely been, I don't know. It was hard. It was sucked. It was awful. And it saddened me how much stress and anxiety and just heartbreak it put honestly, just on my the friends and family alone they've been my biggest supporters and I always just feel so terrible for like like but that's the reality of mental illness right like that's why it's so important to talk about it and address it and and deal with it if you have it because it hurts not only yourself but it hurts everyone around you absolutely yeah well a couple things obviously one thank you so much for explaining all of that and I mean I obviously knew um, the extent of some of it, but not to that very deep extent. Um, I know one of the things that actually kind of hit me really hard was, um, or I guess I related to a lot was the actual fact of having vivid dreams. 
because mm-hmm. I have vivid dreams almost every single night and not to that extent, but my dreams I'll wake up and I'm like, did that happen? And I'm looking around like as if yeah. that actually happened or there's been times when I've fallen asleep. Um, just I'll be doing something and I'll just fall asleep by accident. And I dream, but I think it's actually happening because I'm in the exact same setting in my dream. And then I have somebody that's, I know really well, or from a past relationship, whatever it is. And it's almost like they're standing right in front of me looking at me. And I had that one time. um, There was somebody that I knew and they were standing right in front of me and they were talking to me and they came over to like, touch me, like touch my hand or something, or like grab me to take me somewhere. And then all of a sudden I woke up and I was so confused and so lost. And I think a lot of it is um, obviously when you become overtired and just exhausted mentally, your mind obviously will do that to you. It'll almost play a trick on you and you'll get to those states where you have those super vivid dreams. And it's almost like playing out a scenario that you've thought of in your head, but it's actually happening in your dreams. And, um, and for some of those, it's ones that, I know that for myself, I've even taken learning of kind of like some experience from those dreams and learned to what I shouldn't do or what I um, don't want to do in my life. But uh, no, that was obviously insane hearing you explain some of those dreams that you had. But I guess another question that I have for you is with bipolar disorder, bipolar two disorder, do you find that it's hard to explain that to people and explain it to an extent where they actually understand where you're coming from and why um, you've either acted a certain way in the past or why you might act a certain way in the future or with someone? hundred percent. Um, the thing with having bipolar is that uh, like all mental illness, I can tell you all about it. I can tell you what it's like but no, you will never understand. I mean, for example, I know me trying to explain how, how frustrating it can be becoming hypomanic. A lot of people sort of just go, well, the second you start feeling that way, why, why don't you just stop it? Like, why don't you go to the doctor and recognize the fact that you're, you're becoming hypomanic. Mm -hmm. And the reason that, yeah, no, great idea. (laughs) Like great idea. (laughs) I wish, but that's the thing that people don't understand is this mood disorder, there's no control. Like when it starts to become out of control, like it is truly out of control because it's this vicious cycle of, okay, yeah, I'm going into hypomania. But like that initial period is you're just really, really happy and you're feeling really good. And especially for someone like with bipolar, if you were kind of just more so of a major depressive side, you really crave that and you think, okay, I'm coming out of it. Like, that's great. And then it's, it's a quick buildup but it, it builds and it's just, it gets out of control. And mm-hmm. when it gets out of control, there's no stopping it. And that's the problem. It's so, so hard. Like the meds can only do so much, right? Like it's a mental illness. There's, there's bloops, but, and then again, explaining like when you're at the highest point, like you, sh- some people are like, you should just know you're at the peak. Like, you know, your crash is coming. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no way to know until you get your trigger and all of a sudden your whole world crashes apart. You know what I mean? So the whole, yeah, it's super hard to explain because even now saying like, it's like feeling that insane happiness, that super awesome high. Okay. So imagine you have that, like, a, like if you're a regulated moon person and you have stabilized mood, mm-hmm. your happiness is times like 45, Mm-hmm. for me when I'm feeling hypomanic. So you just, you can't stop it. You can't control it. You really, you crave that. You know what I mean? And so, yeah. I mean, there's definitely techniques I've, I've uh, come to get over the years of, okay, so if I am feeling this way, like, okay, I could be in this zone and then I'll go to a doctor, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. It is, it is hard to explain and I don't ever expect people to understand. And I mean, like sometimes something will just trigger a complete meltdown and it doesn't make sense and they'll always be like well why didn't you do this differently like couldn't you have just couldn't you tell like you're going into that state and like my answer is no you can't always tell <laughs> <laughs> which is why it is very hard to explain yeah I, don't know if I answered your question no absolutely it did and I as well like I think with that is nobody understands 
what you're going through until you're actually in it, you know? And even then nobody, like nobody will understand the struggles that I've gone through and how I've felt to an exact T other than myself. Nobody will understand what you've gone through and experience those exact same feelings other than yourself. And so that just obviously proves that everyone has these different stories and they all go through these different emotions, emotional highs, emotional lows, but nobody will ever experience those exact same feelings as someone we can obviously. And that's why I created this was that so people could obviously hear your story and relate to it or relate, at least take some things and relate to it. Like I know that I personally, I don't have bipolar two disorder. At least I don't think so. I very <laughs> well could, but um, no, but I can still relate to little bits and chunks of your story. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing for me. And I even just hearing you talk about some of those things, it makes me think, and it makes me question what I need to do or what I could do in the future, or even think about some of the past experiences that I've had and obviously take a deep look inside of myself and see if there's something that I need to change or fix. Um, But it's the same with anyone. Anyone can relate to your story and anyone can relate to mine or anyone else's. But like I said before, nobody will ever experience those exact same feelings that you've encountered. um, And especially to that extent. And obviously thanks so much for sharing it to that extent, because that's like, that's why we're here. We want people to obviously hear what we have to say and, here to the exact exact extent to, of it mm-hmm. um i guess what would be like because you talked about how people if you're at a certain point and you even like you acknowledge it because or when people say oh if you notice that you're getting to this certain high point or this certain low point why don't you just go talk to a doctor or why don't you go do this mm-hmm. but I think another thing is doctors aren't always available for you at your every doorstep. Um, Have you had to encounter that, like encounter the struggles of not being able to see someone for a long period of time when you've really needed it? Yeah. So um, another thing to add, like when you were talking about the cycles, the difference too, um, real quick, like between bipolar one and bipolar two is bipolar one is manic episodes and bipolar two is hypomanic. Mm -hmm. manic episodes it's the difference is in duration of your cycle so you'll be manic for a longer period of time you'll be major depressive for a longer period of time yeah with hypomania though like with bipolar 2 what i have it's fact like Mm -hmm. i could be hypomanic for like two weeks and then i could be major depressive for two weeks and then i could be hypomanic for two weeks and like so with mine especially like that makes it a lot harder to catch because I mean, a lot of people like with stress and all of the pressure we have nowadays, like we'll all go through a two week period where we're feeling a little bit blue or like mm-hmm. everything seems stress free. We're feeling a little high. So it's, that's hard enough. So that's why it's very, very difficult to, to sometimes see when someone is hypomanic or someone is um, major depressive with bipolar two. But with regard to seeing a doctor and having access to it, um, I actually, the reason, one of the big reasons I came back to Queens was given the COVID circumstances and everything being virtual, my psychiatrist, I don't have a psychiatrist in Kelowna. The wait list is absolutely ridiculously long, which is yeah. a reason I stayed in Kingston in the first place in first year, because I had immediate access through my, like my student health year. Whereas yeah. in Kelowna, I would have been on a wait list for like three months and yeah. I was critical. That just wasn't going to work. So mm. I did back then. Um, and when I came home for the summer, I just, again, I don't have a psychiatrist out there. I just have my family doctor, but for me, especially like she's lo- lovely, helps me through it, mm-hmm. but I just, I need my psychiatrist. It's just a different level of understanding, um, when it comes to my mental illness. So I was in Kelowna and I, I wasn't in the best headspace in certain periods throughout the summer. Like COVID really took a hit on a lot of people, mm-hmm. um, I really felt it personally. So I did talk to her a little bit here and there. I did find out, however, that out here, given all the circumstances with the pandemic, they were restricting access to psychiatry services for students outside of the province. So I, I mean, I was already thinking about coming back, but that was sort of my last, my big motivating factor is if I don't get back to Ontario, I'm not going to have any psychiatry services for the whole year. And I, I don't know if I could do it, to be honest with you. Like, yeah, I don't know, because they can pick up that's the, that's the importance of seeing a medical professional is mm. the way I'm talking to him, for example. So if I go in 
And he's like, how was it going? I'm like, oh, it was really good today. Like I did this and that and this. <laughs> like, I don't know. I, yeah. <laughs> He'd be like, okay, so you have really rapid speech. Um, are you sleeping? And like, <laughs> pick up on those signs that like, yeah. I'm maybe going through a made like a hypomanic episode or just my body language. Like I'm a very eccentric person. You can tell when I'm not doing very well. And if I'm masking it, he sees right through it. So it's, it's so critical for, for me to have that one-on-one treatment all the time. Um, but even with that now, like it's all virtual. I haven't had a chance to see them, see my psychiatrist yet. Um, but yes, I did come back because I had zero access to psychiatry in Kelowna and I didn't want to lose my connections here. Yeah, no. Yeah, definitely. Do you think, um, do you think, I guess Kelowna, but kind of everywhere has to hopefully change that aspect of it and the, the wait lists, Mm -hmm. who you can see when you can see them. Uh, like, well, how do you think we could change that? Well, I mean, I think it's the same in all different cities. And even at Queens, like I know to get into a counseling session, there's sometimes a wait list of like six weeks. I, I sort of bypassed the line to be totally honest with you, because I was so critical in first year. Like it was, I was the highest priority to get into treatment. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I've been so blessed. Like I got in immediately. And every time I say, something's wrong. They go get her in, <laughs> get her in. But I know what Queens has been doing is they've been trying to use um, like their virtual resources. So they have a 24 hour counseling service through student wellness services. So all students, yeah. if you have like a student card or whatnot, um, you're a registered full-time student, you have access to that, which is amazing. So I really think that in this day and age, especially, I think it's going to be able to cover a lot more ground if we get more access to psychiatry and counseling online with that, I know there's not as deep of a connection as there is in person. I don't feel as comfortable online personally. Um, there's just not the same sense of privacy, I guess. Yeah. So I don't know. I think like really starting to rely on our online platforms though, and recruiting, I mean, little things too, like helplines, right? Like when you can get yeah. volunteers, like you don't have to be trained to be supportive. I mean, if they could get exactly. volunteer lines going and have students, sign up for or any not even students but any volunteer sign up for Kate you got a shift like you take a call whatnot Mm -hmm. you can pass that on to a higher power if it is an immediate emergency but I mean in the long run again it just takes someone to be able to actively listen to support so I think that would be huge especially right now definitely yeah how how do you think COVID's actually affected everyone's mental health but especially the people that have already been struggling with mental health or even the ones that maybe weren't struggling before and are now experiencing mental health. Oh, I think COVID's done a number. I, I saw this, I saw a blog post or something and it was saying how last month there were more deaths from suicide than there were COVID cases. Mm -hmm. And that just hit hard for me because it just really goes to show you that given the pandemic, like you, you could have you no mental illness, but your mental health can still be affected if your if your outlets are taken away. Right. Like I know in, I'm in Ontario right now, all of our gyms have gone back to phase one. So I went to book the gym tomorrow. That's my outlet. They're fully booked for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So Absolutely. I don't know. I just feel like, again, you don't have that one-on-one connection with people and human like we need to communicate like we need to connect with one another and a lot of people are so they're stuck right now like they're stuck in a place where they don't have any access to a doctor they don't have any access to a psychiatrist they don't get to see their friends they're they're immunocompromised they can't go out and get that social that social aspect that is so critical to our mental health and our well-being mm-hmm. um so I don't know with that too I guess like it's a matter of checking in. I know some people are thriving during the pandemic. They really love the alone time. Whereas a lot of like a lot of social butterflies, for example, like this is hard. This is super hard. Not being able to like see all your friends on a Friday night when that's the one thing in your week that you look really, really forward to after working in nine to five or something, you know? And I don't know, I guess that's when it becomes so critical to really check in with yourself and check in with, with your body and figure out what can I do to give any sort of relief from this like it kind of feels like prison <laughs> I know. I know. yeah I totally agree I know the uh I mean with work I was never affected um right by the pandemic so I didn't really have to worry about that but that's one of the things that ultimately it kind of pisses me off is seeing 
this pandemic being obviously talked about on every single platform you could ever imagine. And then knowing that like, I don't, I don't know the exact numbers, so I don't want to say like random ones, but I did see a post and it literally said that something along the lines of like 250,000 people have died due to COVID and then about 400,000 people in the exact same time slot have mm-hmm. actually committed suicide. And that mm-hmm. is like heart wrenching. And it's, that's what frustrates me so much is because we're talking about this pandemic everywhere we go. You hear about it every single place you go and then mental health kind of gets pushed right under the rug, even though the numbers are not like, to be honest, not even compare in comparison. And that is, yeah, like that to me. And that's why I want to do a platform like this is so that people actually will be open and they'll talk about it and hopefully they'll reach out to me or somebody that I know at least. And obviously, or even someone that is close to them and finally speak up about their struggles because those numbers need to go way down, like way, way, way down. And unfortunately at the moment, there's one, there's not enough resources. And I think that's one of the biggest issues is we can't seek help exactly when we want it. You have to wait in these massive (laughs) wait lists. And then it almost doesn't feel as personal when you go in because you know that they're seeing like a hundred other people. Right. And it's difficult because sometimes they'll even I've had the experience where I've went to see my psychiatrist and they've forgotten where we were before, where we, what left, yeah. where we left off. And then it's like, so you're recapping on that and then your time slot runs out. And then it's sometimes that gets really frustrating, but like you also said is being behind a screen is definitely a lot more, or I guess it's just a lot harder to be personal and connect and almost give your trust to someone and the trust to basically explain how for some people explain how you're suicidal or you don't want to be here anymore. And I know for myself, I love talking face to face and connecting with someone because you can see their emotions and you can see how they take in your story and what it actually does to them or even hearing their voice, but putting a face to their voice just helps an excessive amount. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. I think, uh, I think there's a lot that I know I'm trying not to be negative towards the mental health, uh, world and society, but I do personally believe that there is so many flaws within it. And in, in a lot of ways, I feel like there's some organizations that run it like a business where they look at it as the more clients they have coming in, uh, the more money that they'll be getting from either the government or in donations, something along those lines. But I think it's really important that we just be super personal about this. And I want to, I want to see more resources available to people but immediate resources where you can reach out and you can build personal connections and you can see all of that happen and unfold kind of before your eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, hopefully I'm the next one to do that because uh, you, I guess I haven't even told you yet, but we have created an organization. So it's going to be the struggle create strength organization. And our goal is to start in Kelowna because obviously it's in the home front and we've uh, encountered, we've encountered, um, not a lack of words here. We've kind of encountered all the, the I guess the lack of resources and um, the lack of immediate attention. So basically I've partnered up with someone to bring and build a mental health facility here in Kelowna that offers 24 hours, seven days a week, um, in-person help and help where you can, if you're, cause I know for myself anyways, usually from, I guess, nine to five, it's like work time and you're not, you're not all in your head, uh, for the most part, or maybe you are, but you're at work. So you can't go to a mental health facility that's open nine to five and only <laughs> on Monday to Friday, because 
that for most people, it just doesn't work and it doesn't fly that way. So uh, yeah, what we basically wanted to do was offer a facility that's 24 hours, seven days a week. And obviously have our psychiatrists that are there around the clock, have our counselors that are there around the clock and then have volunteers that are there around the clock. So if we get a pile of people coming in, they can come in and they can actually just speak to someone because sometimes that's all it takes is just being able to sit down and speak to someone. And then obviously if it's something that's so urgent and such a major emergency, you will get the help that you need. It might not be in two minutes, but it could very well be in say 20 minutes or even to the extent of an hour. But in that hour, you're not just sitting there on your phone, talking to someone, doing whatever you're sitting there talking and expressing your struggles to a volunteer that's working in the facility or somebody that's going to sit there and listen to you and allow you to cry on their shoulder and just give you that personal help. So that's something that just, it happened and I'm really excited to actually make it. Come. Oh, I love that for you. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah I'm, it's going to be awesome. And I'm, like for me anyways, what, the way that I look at it is the most, most wealthy thing that you can do is, not make millions and millions of dollars or billions of dollars, but it's just to help someone. And whether it's opening the door for someone or creating a mental health facility or a platform, or even just sharing your story, that's something that I hold really dear to me. And obviously I envy you for coming on and speaking about your story. And obviously we've been really close friends for a long time. And um, we've obviously bounced some of our struggles back and forth and, got to connect on those personal levels. And I was like, on my behalf, anyways, I'll say that it's helped me astronomically. And I know oh, that I'm a better person because of it. And I've learned how to deal with some of my struggles just from you talking about yours. And it's obviously oh. super beneficial. So well, that's just it, though, right? Like, that's the whole point is even if you're not seeing a professional, mm -hmm. to have someone listen and provide any sort of guidance, like, if you came to me and you're like, Hey, I'm having a really bad day. Like I feel like so in my head, like your girl knows some strategy. <laughs> you know, but that's the point being is that we all have some sort of insight. Like we all have a little outlet that it could absolutely work for someone else. Yeah. Like breathing techniques or going on a walk or something like whatever your niche is, like someone can likely relate to it, which is why, like you said, just having these open rock, conversations it makes such a difference absolutely no totally um so i guess another thing that i actually wanted to ask you about was you've done something obviously amazing throughout the summer <laughs> and that was uh miles for mental health do you want yes. to explain that whole initiative that you became a part of i would love to okay so um a dear friend of mine on her instagram she posted this little blurb about miles for mental health so me being me went and looked at it. Cause I was like, Oh, that's fun. Um, and another thing to, to sign up for, there we go. But no, <laughs> and then I saw, um, it's actually run by this group of students at UBC. I think they're all in Sauter school of business. I want to say, yep. and it's sort of their like school organization called drop the puck official. And what they do is they start this fundraiser. Um, they do it every year. It's called miles for mental health. And the whole idea is they get a whole bunch of athletes on board and for every $2 that an athlete raises, that's a doll or sorry, that's one mile that they walk, run, bike, swim, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and all the proceeds go towards the Canadian Mental Health Association. Um, and that looks like putting money towards creating youth programs, like support youth groups and, mm -hmm. and just more resources for mental health for youth in the Vancouver region, especially. Yep. And so my outlet I found during quarantine was I started running. I just really took an interest in it. So I was like, Oh, like, why not? This is going for such a good cause. I might as well sign up. And I was hoping to raise like 200, 250. Um, and I ended up raising like over $3,000. Um, so far I have got 525 miles under my belt, <laughs> but, or kilometers, wow. kilometers, I think kilometers I've done 525 so far. I've got a very long ways to go. I've got like 1100 miles to go. Yeah. Um, but besides that, point being is that I like the way I went about this campaign is I made it super personal. It had such a connection to me. There's still a lot of people who don't know about my diagnosis. I've always put such a front on. Um, and I just 
yeah, I haven't really been open about having bipolar. So when the campaign first started, I put out this post on Instagram and I sort of said, Hey, like, here's my story. Here's what it's all about, why I'm doing this. And I think within the first night I had like over $200, which that alone was so humbling. I was just so thankful, but money aside, the biggest thing for me is like, every time someone donated, they could say why they donated and people left like, Oh, it makes me so it just like the (laughs) most beautiful comments, like words of encouragement towards me being vulnerable themselves. The amount of people I had reach out to me and say, you know what? I've been looking for a voice and you are it. I feel like I can confide in you. This is what I've been dealing with. Thank you for giving me this platform to be open. Mm -hmm. And that was so inspiring. And so, yeah, then I just, a few other things after like with more posts and whatnot, I also ended up like posting um, a video sort of going like super in depth about my diagnosis and the reality of it, what it looks like living with bipolar, Mm -hmm. sort of paint a picture of what it's like to just give people even a better understanding of one, you have no idea what someone is going through. Like the amount of people also that reached out and said, I had zero idea you went through any of this. I'm sorry. Like, and I, and I said, don't apologize. Like going through all of this has made me like this strong, like boss ass bitch that I am. (laughs) Um, No, but it was so wonderful. So yeah, the campaign ended on September 4th and Iris, I think it was like $3,098 altogether. Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone, as a whole, I think raised over seven grand, close to eight grand, all towards the Canadian Mental Health Association. Wow. So I'm going to be running for a really long time, <laughs> but it's just so worth it. That's so incredible, Carly. And honestly, thank you. Great job. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, no, the that, best piece of my life. Like, <laughs> yeah, that is that is amazing. And obviously, I'm sure that. Like I know, I reached out to you and I followed yeah. your journey, and that's just. I was so inspired watching, just watching your whole entire journey and seeing what you're doing. And obviously I even saw some of the support that was going towards you and it's amazing. And it's amazing for me to see from an outsider, but I just can't imagine how amazing that was for you. And obviously this is, this is a, like a platform where you want to be supportive and with mental health in a whole, you, it's something that should be supportive and it's something that's not negative and especially with bipolar disorder as well. Nothing's negative about it. You need to obviously take it as a positive and look at like, that's who you are. And that's obviously amazing. And yeah, I just can't, I just, yeah, I'm speechless. Honestly, I'm speechless. So yeah. Thank you for obviously doing all of that for us. But I mean, thank you for this. Like even just, I, the amount of people, like I said, that just they felt safe enough to reach out with me and open up and just yeah. be vulnerable. Like it reinforces the importance of speaking out. Like it takes one person to speak out. It takes us to have a conversation for someone else to be like, Hey, I want to be a part of that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. No, I totally agree. So thank you. Um, and yeah, <laughs> of course. And just explain um, what, uh, what you did at the very end of it all though. Oh, true. How did I forget that? Thank you. <laughs> Um, yeah, no. So at the end, like right before, I think, yeah, September 1st, it was, um, my friend, Jeremy West and I, we took it home and running our first marathon together. It, the whole thing took us about four hours. So we were about 10 K an hour, mm-hmm. um, pretty solid time for not really training super, yeah. healthy, but no, it was awesome. So that was one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. It was so challenging, but again, it was just really like getting through the physical pain too. It was like using those words of mental encouragement, like making sure I'm in a stable mental place to like get myself through this words of affirmation became really good friend of mine. Um, so no, that was awesome. That raised a lot, a lot of awareness too. And we ended up on Castanet, So I'm kind of famous. (laughs) (laughs) No big deal. Yeah. Not a big deal. That's awesome. No, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's super, yeah, cool. uh, super motivating for sure, for myself, especially. Um, so I guess what's one of the biggest things or the biggest thing that you've kind of learned from your story and from the struggles that you've actually gone through? Oh, the biggest thing I learned um, is to just honestly never, ever suppress 
your emotions or belittle what you are going through. Mm -hmm. I, I allowed the stigma to like put me in denial about having bipolar and I suppressed everything I was feeling. I didn't embrace it. I didn't take charge and address it head on. And I ended up really sick. I ended up really ill and like, thank God for my supports, like for everyone who's like kept me going. But I don't know. I just, I feel like so many people, they suppress it and they say, ah, like someone else has a bigger problem and you get rid of that mentality, get rid of it. Because if you're feeling off in the slightest or even having like one, like just one bad mental health day without an illness aside, like, I don't care, like own it, like talk to someone about it, embrace it, like embrace that pain and let's use it to, to grow, like use it to fuel yourself, like face mm-hmm. it head on so you can get the help you need if you need it. Absolutely. No, I totally agree. I, uh, yeah, I think you kind of hit it right on the, right on the nose. Um, what is, I guess with that being said, what's, I guess the biggest tip of advice that you would have for somebody that has struggled or is struggling with mental health has struggled with mental health or even gets to the extent of obviously thinking about self-harm or taking their own life, or even just for those people that are feeling the slightest bit off or are not, their, their usual selves? Um, I think my biggest thing for all of those situations, the biggest preventative measure you can take is finding a safe person. Mm-hmm. It can just serve if you're in like the biggest state of distress and you feel like you are out of control. Like I, I'm really fortunate. Like I'm very close with my housemates, but I'll walk upstairs and be like, I'm not okay. <laughs> I like, I am at, I think I might be at risk of like harming myself. Like I need I need help. Like I need help. And so to find that safe space. And that's the thing that I think so many people like, that's why they end up in such a dark hole. It makes me so sad is because they don't know who to turn to because like you go to that counselor and she says, eh, I'll see you in November. Like you try to go to the doctor's clinic. They go, eh, like, I don't know what to do. There's a four month wait list, Mm -hmm. anything like, like the resources can seem so limited, but I promise there is a resource, like whether it be like, reach out to me anytime. I don't care. If you don't know me. Reach out to me. Luke, same thing. Reach out to him anytime. Like finding that one person to phone call to just calm you down. It it's huge. Anytime you have an urge or just it's, it's that support because then it just, it takes away that feeling of lonesome and like being just sort of an outcast, I guess, like if that is how you're feeling and just being simply in the same presence as someone else or hearing someone else's voice, like, okay, you're no longer alone. Like, let's take that away. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's for myself as well. I never try to solely rely on a psychiatrist or a counselor or Mm -hmm. any form of doctor. I obviously love going to see my psychiatrist. I go see him every, I think it's right now I'm at like every two, three weeks. Um, but those are just more so checkups and just to go there and tell what's happened in two weeks. And we just sit there and we talk and it's super beneficial for myself. But at the same time, I always like to have at least one other person or a few people that I know that I can go talk to if I'm really down or I can just shoot him a text and be like, Hey, can we meet up? Like I'm not in the right headspace. I'm today. I feel super down, super depressed, or there's something that's bothering me. Can we just go do something? And for those people that I use as my resources, they're super, super helpful. And I know that just reaching out and talking about it and allowing myself to be vulnerable with those people helps me in the long run. And it has helped me in the long run. And uh, last year when I was in the hospital, um, I remember they told me, they said, yeah, we'll give you a call in three days. They let me out and didn't do anything about it. They're like, we'll give you a call in three days. We'll do a checkup appointment, blah, blah, blah. They never called me back. And I knew they probably weren't going to. So I took it within my own hands to actually reach out to a psychiatrist and see if I could book an appointment. And of course it was, yeah, we can book you an appointment three weeks from today. And it's like, so last night I'm laying on the road (laughs) with, my wrists all cut up and here now today I'm trying to book an appointment, which is super urgent. And I feel that I really need the help and I can't do it. And, Mm -hmm. and so luckily I am kind of like who I am and I have all those uh, different support avenues around me with it being my parents, my friends, um, 
different family members, coaches, all of that. I had the support that I needed. And if I didn't have that, I very well could not be sitting in front of this screen today. And there's a lot of people that don't have those support systems and they are forced to wait and they can't wait. And that's why the numbers for suicides are absolutely staggering is because we don't have that that help that we can access right away. And it's always the, oh yeah, you have to wait six weeks. You have to wait three weeks or you have to wait even a week. Like a week is a long time when you're in, when you are touching rock bottom. Like, yeah, it is insane how slow time goes. And especially when you're alone, like if you don't have a spouse, if you don't have someone that can, will sleep in your room with you, when you're sitting there at night, you are, I'll guarantee you, and I'm sure you've had the same thing. You'll be sitting in your bed and you have a million things going through your mind and you're sitting there in the darkest, like just the darkest pit of your mind. And it is, it's almost horrifying to know where your mind's going. And, and then even like when that's when the self-harm comes out and that's when all these negative, negative thoughts arise and it's, yeah, it's a spiral. It's, it's definitely a snowball effect of negativity, but also like a double-edged sword too. Right. Because I feel like the restricted access to psychiatrists are because there aren't enough because so many people are seeking help for it now, which is amazing that so many people want to get help, but there's just not enough. And so another person, like two other sources, like I always recommend going to that a lot of people don't think of is one, your family doctor, even though they're not trained, like in psychiatry, Mm -hmm. they can sometimes get you to where you need to be, or just be that person to talk to you about, because there's typically not as large of a way to get into your your family physician. Um, and it's another thing too, I know it can be a lot to get yourself here, but like, if you're in a place of distress, if you go to the emergency actually, and tell them like, I am at risk because of my mental health, like Mm -hmm. they have to help you, like they cannot turn you away. So that is another source to go to. If you're like really at harm, really at risk. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's also another reason why I said I want to build this facility is because you want it almost almost to act as an emergency room for mental health because everyone always yeah. thinks, oh, the emergency room. Okay, yeah, I need, I just cut my arm or I broke my leg, like whatever it is. Yeah. And that's, that's how you always think of the emergency room. And that's almost, essentially what I want to have for this facility is it to act as an emergency room where you don't need to be suicidal. You don't need to have any form of disease. It's just a matter of, Oh yeah, today I'm feeling really down. I'd love to talk to someone. Okay. I'm going to go to the emergency room, but it's the mental health emergency room where you just go in and you talk to someone and it's nice to welcoming environment that you can just express how you're feeling and not be judged and not have to worry about anything. So no, it's such a great idea. I am. Um, I actually volunteered at, it's called the peer support center here at Queens. So I was a peer support and basically what it was, it was all student run. Um, you have a student on shift. Like my shift was like two hours, I think. And anyone else, any student body can come and go as they please. And yeah. if they're having a good, like I had people come in and be like, I just have amazing day I started saying yeah I was like yeah like thanks <laughs> like, I've had other people come in like sobbing and you 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 just support them and then you've got like your resource bible right like yeah. like that's the same thing with yours like if they're at a serious place like they're at risk like they really need help like you'll have a list of resources to get them exactly. to, like contact 911 etc but yeah point of that is that made a huge PSC made a huge difference this will make a huge difference I'm I'm all for it I just love it I love what you're doing Thanks, Carly. I love you. Like, you're, yeah, you're great. Um, no, actually, though, like you today, obviously, like not have you only touched me in a in a very like in a very wholesome way and a way that has made me learn a lot more about you. And I thought I knew a lot about you, but I guess there's still there's more, to always learn. more to learn about yeah, each other. Exactly. But no, it's been yeah, it's been amazing having you on. And I think this podcast will be something that honestly shapes a lot of lives. And I think that you and the way that you present yourself shapes a lot of lives. And for anyone that does want to reach out, I 100% think that reaching out to Carly is a very positive, very, very positive person and very positive route to go. Um, What is your Instagram handle or 
some form of way that they could reach out to you? Yeah, my Instagram handle, um, don't ask me why I spelt it like this, but it is my name at Carly, spelled K-A-A-R-L-L-E-E, because <laughs> why not? Um, yeah, message me on that anytime. Shoot me a follow, I'll follow you back. My Facebook too is just my name, Carly Appel. Add me. I always go through like my message requests. Um, so I will see it, but please reach out. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. And it is obviously so awesome to see you again and to talk to you and obviously have this vulnerable conversation. Always here for him. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Struggle Create Strength. Struggle Create Strength is a mental health platform exemplifying that everyone has a story. No two stories are the same, but every story has the potential to help someone else. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, and Podbean at Struggle Create Strength. I hope you have a great day, and everyone remember that everyone has a story.